I'm Alan Thorpe. And I'm David Rogers, and together we host The Weather Pod. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to help investigate how public, private and academic sectors can work together to produce weather information of value to business and society. Timely, accurate and focused weather information and related services have enormous value across all areas of human activity. It can increase the efficiency and profitability of business, help save lives and improve safety on land, at sea and in the air, and predict the spread of life-threatening diseases. Now, as climate change increases the frequency and impact of extreme weather events, weather information is crucial to build social and economic resilience. And welcome to the Weather Pod. Our guests today are Dr. Shipra Jain and Dr. Marisol Osman. Both Shipra and Marisol are members of YES, the Young Earth System Scientist community, which is shaping the future of Earth System science by fostering the leaders of tomorrow. Shipra is interested in how society can benefit from improved knowledge of extremes and is currently working on seasonal and subseasonal forecasting at the Centre for Climate Research in Singapore. Marisol has worked with anthropologists, economists and farmers to co-design and co-produce forecasting tools for sub-seasonal and seasonal timescales. She is currently working at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology on the predictability of weather and sub-seasonal climate relevant to the energy sector. Welcome Shipra and Sol to the WeatherPod. Um, we wanted to, to talk a bit about your insight into <clears throat> how uh, the weather enterprise, weather and climate scene has has developed, and your experience of coming into uh, weather and climate science and and the enterprise, and obviously across um, weather and climate, there are lots of possible career opportunities: pure science, applied science, uh, operational um, activities in meteorology and and climate, right through to interacting with users and developing services for, for users. So there's quite a diversity of, of roles and careers that, that are possible. And uh, I think I'd like to start by by asking you to, to sort of reflect on how you, in a sense, how you have experienced that. How, how did you come to choose the area that you are, are in, in terms of a career? And do you see, as a second part, perhaps, <clears throat> do you think that it's clear for people that there are these range of of career opportunities and do you for example see yourself developing in over time into different kinds of activities uh, in the enterprise and maybe Shipra if we could maybe start from your perspective on this please. Okay yeah so in my opinion I think that the ECRs are very much or the early career researchers are very much aware about the opportunities that are out there and the diversity of roles. Uh, as an example, I in my last 10 years, I have worked at research organizations, two different operational centers, university, and also with the industry. So I first and experienced those different roles, and uh, I, I really think that Though it appears that, okay, this is basic science and this is applied science, but these roles are actually very complementary for each other. And uh, to just to illustrate as an example, when here where I am in operational center, when we design product, 
uh, we cannot just go out and start designing a forecast product. We need a solid foundational science on which our products can be based. And if the science doesn't exist, then the product would not be reliable and will not have any value to the users. Uh, this also like involves going back and forth uh, with the users as well as scientists uh, to understand their need and requirements. So I would say it's a kind of a research in itself. You, you mentioned um, there, Shipra, that that you were you are aware of the diversity of the of the enterprise. How, when you started, how how did you get that knowledge? Do you think? When, how did you come to the view about this diversity of roles? Uh, so I wouldn't say that I had that knowledge from the beginning. So as I went along in my career, I was exposed to different fields and different roles uh, and the opportunities came. Uh, but uh, yes, to begin with, I don't think that I was aware that there are so many different roles which are available within the weather and climate enterprise. OK, so so Sol, how about you? And, and perhaps picking up on that point from Shipra, how, how did 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 the um, for example the the yes network did it has it helped you in that regard in understanding all these different roles yes i think that yes has helped me to to see opportunities outside the traditional ones in academia because in particular i think that in academia, uh, they should do more about to inform students about career opportunities outside it i think the problem at the very beginning was that a career outside academia was the path chosen by those who could not get a position in universities or research institutions. But uh, nowadays, the students decide early in their studies that a career path outside academia or a research institution, maybe more in contact with users, is the preference. And therefore, we seen a change in the way the education institutions showcase this uh, diversity. My perception is that this process was driven more by the students rather than the, the institutions, so it was completely bottom up. And in this sense, I think that uh, these networks of early career researchers that actually build uh, in a bottom up approach has helped to, to produce this transformation in the ways we are showcasing the, the opportunities. That's a really positive outlook because, as you say, certainly would be my experience, which of course is much longer than yours, that there is a kind of traditional attitude to the development of a career, particularly if you uh, go into a PhD, you, you kind of feel as though the only route, the only line you can go on is is the academic one. And I certainly wasn't aware of the vast variety of jobs there are. So I'm really pleased to hear that you, you feel things are changing. So if I, I could pick up a bit on that. And uh, if you think about in the past, and maybe it's in Alan and my past <laughs> particularly, your career development um, really depended on a kind of rather strict disciplinary approach. You, know, that you, you studied a particular field and, and you rather stuck to that. And to branch out into collaborative science, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary science, there were certain perils associated with that. And yet today, you know, that rather holistic Earth Systems approach is really what we need. And so I, I was curious about whether you think um, that this offers, you know, more challenges and, and opportunities for early career researchers and and how have, how has this uh, impacted career opportunities? And Sol, could I, could I start with you? 
Uh, yes, of course. Uh, I think that even though the work, uh, not only in research, but also in application, uh, has become more interdisciplinary, we are still educated uh, under very disciplinary-based context, either in atmospheric ocean sciences, but also in other disciplines like social sciences that eventually they, they interact with us uh, under certain uh, projects. So I think that the challenge is then uh, how to bring our disciplinary knowledge into this interdisciplinary dialogue and fostering a mutual respect and understanding between disciplines. Personally, I don't think we should give up our disciplinary-based education, but we also should include some type of training or education to gain in some skills that are sometimes called soft skills, although I'm still not convinced about this uh, definition, uh, but I think that these type of skills uh, could help American researchers work in this interdisciplinary uh, context. And, and Shipra, what are your thoughts? Uh, so I think I completely agree with Marisol that uh, just because the impact of climate change runs so deep within the society and there is impact on agricultural transport, biodiversity and energy whatnot. So there are multiple new fields evolving which centered around the impact of climate change on eggs. So this has, of course, uh, exacerbated the career opportunities that have, that we, maybe the generation before us didn't have, and we have those kind of opportunities now. But I do agree that uh, we are still lacking uh, a bit on the training part of the ECRs. As an example, uh, when we work uh, on interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary research, we are often required to speak with researchers on, uh, who are working on other disciplines, and which means that you need communication skill to talk to those researchers. In my experience, I find that uh, these languages in which we speak across discipline can be very difficult and different. For climate science, for one, it's very acronym heavy, and that could be very cryptic to people who are not in climate sciences. Uh, so, uh, and this is not a part of our mainstream training. So, communication, leadership, and uh, so the things that mention soft skills, we are ex expected to pick those skills with time and experience in our career, not at the time when we are actually uh, learning climate sciences or doing our PhD or doctorate studies. So I do think that there is a scope for having those kind of trainings, particularly for the researchers who are working on interdisciplinary areas or who intend to work on these areas. Do you think your network, your YES network, could can do something? Um, uh, yes, of course. That? I yes, I think that we have done quite a bit on that. So we uh, the YES network doesn't only cover the basic or natural sciences. We have uh, early career researchers from agriculture, uh, socioeconomy, and other uh, fields, uh, not just like traditional climate science fields like oceanography or chemistry, because that's I consider those as part of me through climate sciences. So uh, uh, because of that, I think it has improved our own knowledge of how to interact uh, with those researchers during our monthly meetings or if we are working on some project together. And it has been quite an enlightening experience for me. And I, I'm sure that Marisol would say the same, that uh, how, how, yeah, how, how, how much training we were lacking 
before being exposed to this side of research. I mean, you're you're both um, again being quite positive about about the multidisciplinary environment, and of course, weather and climate is a great example of multidisciplinary science in principle. But isn't it isn't it extremely hard to to in a sense to 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 become expert in several different disciplinary areas, whether it you know be physics, chemistry, biological aspects, uh, to be able to bring them all together. It, it strikes me that in a way science has sort of gone in the opposite direction. It it tends to focus down into narrower and narrower areas and go deeper and deeper, whereas actually for our field. Uh, we need to keep the breadth and it's incredibly challenging for particularly early career scientists if they have to keep abreast of all of those different disciplines I don't know do you, do you, do you think that's a fair description Sol? Yes I do agree that is a challenge for early career researchers that are part of this interdisciplinary project but also um, very uh, disciplinary based uh, trained and it's also uh, a matter of trying to find out a trade-off between uh, devoting time to learn about other disciplines, but also keep the personal uh, development in a disciplinary uh, consistent. For me, I found a way to do it uh, under a project working with local farmers, anthropologists, but it was very challenging and really time consuming. And I understand that not all the early researchers have the opportunity to spend this time uh, doing both uh, parts of the of the research. Um, this is WeatherPod featuring Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Okay, I'd like just to to move on a little bit to uh, the area of uh, the vexed area of funding. Um, both David and I, in our careers, have had responsibility for for finding funds and and for funding research and development. And it can be, you know, quite challenging to to find the relevant research funds for particular projects, etc. And I just wonder how you feel the landscape is um, developing for. Um, funding research and development. How have you found it, in, and how do you has it has it in a sense that that funding environment has it has it in a way shaped your perception of career opportunities uh, in in the weather enterprise, Shipra? What what do you feel about that? Uh, so my experience is not too different from yours and David's actually. So in an ideal scenario, I would expect the funding opportunities to also evolve at the same pace as the need within the community, right? Which means it's a balance between demand and supply. And unfortunately, I would say that there is a lot of imbalance between that. Uh, so too much demand and too less supply, in my opinion. And uh, I would say that, yes, early career researchers are very much impacted by this. And uh, I mean, for example, there are not enough R&D positions within academia or national governmental organizations to accommodate the PhD uh, graduates or researchers. The contract lengths for the temporary jobs are getting shorter and shorter. And honestly, over the last couple of years, I have seen like my colleagues and friends moving to industry solely because you cannot deal with that level of uncertainty where you cannot determine that which part of the world where you will be in next year. 
So it's hard, uh, and it's true that, uh, I mean, of course, we are passionate about research, but uh, passion alone is not enough. <laughs> so we, we need the stable opportunities too. Okay, I mean, I can I can see that. On, on the other hand, just to paint the other side of the, the picture, if you like, certainly in, in my uh, career, I've, I've seen actually a big explosion in the amount of research that's done in our field because obviously because of things like climate change and other societal uh, concerns about the environment so actually in in a way if you look in the slightly longer term there's there's a lot more research going on a lot more researchers in the field uh, but of course that long-term trend doesn't necessarily you don't necessarily feel that when you're in the position of trying to find your next job or your next funding opportunity. Uh, Sol, how do you feel about that? So what I have seen in the last few years in academia, at least in, in my country and region, is a movement of funding towards a more societal-driven or solution-driven research. At some point, uh, this is an issue because it uh, also means that what we call uh, fundamental science or the science try that tries to understand or explain processes is perceived as less important than the former. Um, but I also understand that, um, especially in the global south, in the context where budgets are short, sometimes there is a need to, to show results to society and that's why this type of research is prioritized over others. Um, but I also agree with Shipra that there is an issue in terms of the availability of positions and also in the, the length of the contract that sometimes are offered to, especially to postdoc uh, researchers. So, so just to pick up on the length of the contract, what, what, what's the current kind of environment like? I mean... You know, when when I started out, you were typically looking at a three-year postdoctoral position would be a typical situation. How, how does it seem these days in terms of the length of the contracts? I would say that my experience is that the most common length for a, a postdoc contract is two years. Sometimes you can find three years at the most, and if you see a four-year postdoc, that's really... Uh, really an isolated case uh, the most common are two years or even less at this moment but you also seem to be raising the point that you're kind of you go from one postdoc to another I mean certainly in my day you, you either didn't even have one because you went straight into some academic appointment full-time appointment permanent sem or semi-permanent perhaps um, and you weren't going from essentially one postdoc to another, but it does seem like the norm today is multiple, uh, we'll call them junior positions that just keep cycling on without giving you, putting you on that career path of going from a postdoc to an assistant professor and so so forth. I mean, is that is that what, what you're kind of saying? Exactly, that's what I perceive. On one side, you could think that as a positive uh, thing because you can also, you also learn how to adapt, how to deal with different groups that give you uh, an idea of how different groups deal with the same situations. You're facing two new um, 
new people and you're learning from them. But at the same time, I think that also uh, really attempts to the stability of uh, early career researchers, particularly in this critical stage of their career path when they're trying to, to establish. So, so putting this into um, a context of you know, the changes that are going on in, in society today, so that these major social economic changes that are taking place in response to the climate emergency. So one is, of course, a shift to uh, decarbonize society with implications for energy, food, uh, water security, and among many, many other things. Um, do you think these issues are shaping the way career scientists view the future of weather and, and weather, climate, and hydrological sciences? Uh, so, Yes, I think that that's really positive because um, especially if you're looking for positions outside ac academia, I have never seen so many uh, positions advertised in private companies that are looking for climate or, or weather scientists trying to bring their expertise in order to those companies achieve this goal of uh, decarbonization. Uh, I really uh, like that this um, these opportunities are rapid growing and there's also, there's also going to be a challenge of trying to keep this flow of new positions uh, available throughout the years. But I think that this need for a rapid transition uh, in this moment brings this plenty of opportunity for students and early career researchers. Uh, but also if you're working within academia, you can also bring your knowledge into the public or private sector and interact with them uh, to help them. Shipra? Yeah, I think I, I agree with Marisol because we are moving towards uh, the decarbonized society, for example, and climate change is driving a lot of socioeconomic changes uh, for students, for early career researchers. It's opening new doors, new prospects in terms of the areas where they could work. And as Marisol already highlighted, uh, I have also not seen the recruitment or such a demand of early career researchers in private sector, to be honest, like their food agencies, non-governmental organizations, agriculture sector, who are willing to hire weather and climate researchers to perform some of these studies. So overall, my impression uh, as an ECR in this area that, uh, yes, there is uh, an increase in the opportunities because of such movements. Are they being taken because they are really attractive or are they being taken because of all of the other problems that we've we've brought up? So I think it's both uh, because there are not enough positions in academia to accommodate these many researchers. People are exploring other career opportunities and in return uh, there are more because there is a need and demand from the society to understand some of those implications of climate change. There is a need there as well. Uh, in my experience I particularly feel that that uh, over the last 10 years I have been in weather and climate sciences that the, the boundaries between the academy and industry are becoming more blurred and more fuzzy now. Uh, uh, in these times, I don't think that I would be too worried that, okay, if I go from industry to academy or academia to industry, how would I come back? So that was something that I was thinking when I was a PhD student, that, okay, I have to choose one path now, and maybe I have to stick to that path for the rest of my life. But I don't think that I have, I feel that kind of uh, constraint at this point in my career. I feel that it's quite 
easy now to switch between different sectors. And uh, honestly, I have done work, uh, worked under projects which are done, like which were run jointly by universities, operational centers, and industry. So there are uh, projects like those as well, where all these sectors come together and produce something which could inform the climate, uh, the society of the climate change. So, um, so, so Sol, what, what are your views on, on that? I agree with what uh, Shipra said. Uh, I think that uh, there is a combination of both um, factors and working on. On one hand, the fewer opportunities inside academia for the numbers of graduates that we produce, which is also good because we're thinking, okay, we are producing more PhD than the past, so people have a better education, and eventually we need those professionals to be taken up by companies. And that's what we are seeing at this at this moment. And in addition, something that I also perceived, particularly when I moved last year to Europe, is that some companies have decided also to play an active role in the formation of the next generation of professionals, funding their degrees, hiring them later once they are graduated, uh, but also some companies have their own research and development department where scientists can continue doing research but outside uh, academia. And in particular, my current experience is I'm part of a project under a university, but it's completely uh, funded by an energy company. And I think that's another way when industry can also be uh, involved uh, and partnered with uh, academia uh, to provide more opportunities. Uh, for early career researchers and students. Of course, there are, there are two sort of aspects of, of the private sector in this context. I mean, one is, is there a good research environment that's attractive uh, in a private company? And secondly, um, am I going to get paid well um, in, in that company? What's the, the salary level? I don't know. Do you have any perspective, uh, perhaps Shipra, on, on those two aspects? You know, what is the general feeling about how the private sector provides those opportunities? Uh, so my my perception is fairly positive, I would say. So I think that the salaries are at least competitive. And in some of the cases, it could be even better and exceed uh, what the academia can, can provide us. And regarding opportunities, I really think that uh, the private sectors now offer uh, actually wonderful research opportunities and stimulating research environments for the early career researchers to pursue research outside academia. I have colleagues who are working on exciting research projects with industry and uh, it's quite similar to what we do in uh, academia or, or in operations. To touch a little bit on this, you know, I mentioned about the career path. You go from academia to government to private sector and maybe back. And, of course, in academia, you you publish or perish, right? You really you don't survive unless you're publishing. And so that because that's the sort of measure of success in academia. And what's the feeling relative to this is the feeling about then if you're going to work in the private sector, are the same opportunities there that will enable you to move into academia if you so choose, if you wish to, you know, to go into academia? Will you have had the opportunity to publish and have that kind of record that you need uh, from an academic perspective? 
my perception is that you you still have the opportunity to publish and uh, working in a private uh, company that's always encouraged but it's not your uh, main priority so at some point if you still wish to do it you're free to do it most of the time but it's not this push for publishing that we see in academia and i think that in part because of this and and also because uh, the company is structured different. Another perception that uh, I received from colleagues working in, in companies is that the workload is lower and you can get a better balance between your personal life and also your career development that sometimes in academia it's hard to find, especially when you're facing critical moments, when you're searching for funding or also dealing with different students and overseeing the, their career as well. This is WeatherPod featuring Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. I think this is a very important conversation we're having actually because certainly from my experience of, of private companies, they're, they're desperate for expert um, scientists to come into the companies to, to help them. And um, I think... I hope anyway that in the future, if not now, companies will, will understand that they need to provide opportunities for those scientists who come to them also to keep the option open for moving back. But I don't think it's easy. I don't think it's easy at the moment anyway, but I hope in the future it might get better because obviously in a company there's there's a there's a very strong drive for delivery, rapid delivery for customer requirements and that can often drive you away from taking the time to to really finish off a piece of scientific research to to get it to publication quality so it's i think it's still a challenge um that I, that i see but i think the more enlightened companies understand that and are beginning to see this this two-way movement of of staff um as as a positive but um i wanted just to move on if i may um in our conversation to we talk quite a bit about about career opportunities and funding how, how does it look in terms of geography in terms of where you're trying to find jobs um, I, I guess that when I mean, you both come from very different parts of the world so you might, I think you probably have rather distinct um, experiences of of the environment in your region or, or other regions you've moved to and I think I'd be very interested to know how you see this sort of difference across the world in the ability to to make a career and which kind of career opportunities are 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 available to you. Of course also there's linked to that I suppose is there are obviously um you know the availability of people uh for certain roles in terms of trained people is are going to be different. So Sol what's your experience in terms of that geographical perspective? Well, um, from a Latin America perspective, uh, in particular in, in Argentina, we have seen a transformation in career perspectives in the last few years because the National Med Service has been through a renovation process that uh, required new graduates. And something interesting that happened is that the Med Service partnered with the university to offer scholarships in weather-related sciences, not only climate scientists or weather scientists, but also students in chemistry or physics. Um, it was very interesting to see uh, the med service uh, taking the lead in the development of these new graduates. 
But uh, I would like to see also other uh, governmental uh, agencies uh, following or even companies following this example. However, um, in many countries in South America, I would say that career opportunities outside academia or national med service are still uh, very few. We say that the exception could be Brazil, because it's a big and very industrial uh, country in comparison to, to the other. So I think that as scientists, uh, we still need to show with strong emphasis that our knowledge uh, could be valuable in companies that and can help them to, to develop. And even in sectors that are well developed in Latin America, we are very famous for our agriculture. This sector uh, doesn't demand a large number of graduates uh, from our disciplines yet. So in this sense, uh, I, my short time here in Europe, I noticed a complete different landscape uh, for graduates because I see a, a more involvement uh, of the industry uh, and a more demand of graduates with respect to, to South America or Latin America. Just uh, to pick up, Sol, on, on the earlier point you made, that there was a change in Argentina, that, that, that in a sense this was promoted by the Met Service. Do you have any perspective on, on how that change, why did it, why did it happen? What, what was the driver? Well, the main driver was that historically the Met Service was part of the Army Force and there was a note great development from the 60s to the present. And what the government decided to to put med service outside the army force and bring it to the public, they realized that they need more graduates, that most of the research conducted there was not really useful or not bringing solutions to the med service itself. So they realized that it would have been possible without new staff and new people bringing fresh perspective on how to rebuild the, the med service. That, presumably really help to sorry it would probably presumably help to have uh, Celeste Solo as the as the head of it as a professor so she presumably that that sets a different path for the organization and it, that raised an issue about you know how how institutions led by more academics often whether it's in the private sector, whether it's public sector, um, can often lead to a lot more engagement in, in research and development. So it's, a, it's a, an interesting aspect of our, of our field. Indeed. Ship, Shipra, what, what do you feel about this, this area? Uh, so I'll speak from the perspective on you know, from India because that's where I spent most of my academic life. So I think that again there is a bit crunch of uh, especially for the permanent positions in Indian R and D. Uh, the number of graduates that are being produced every year there is not enough space for those uh, researchers uh, in the. Or, uh, government organizations. So students often explore the other career paths and possibilities. Another uh, another common ex thing that I have seen in academia in India that uh, it's uh, often, it, though it's not a mandatory, but it's often expected that you have some ex postdoc exposure after you graduate. Uh, preferably from somewhere outside India, so that broadens your prospect of getting a job in an Indian research organization, because if you spend a couple of years outside the country in some different organization, uh, 
so I felt that if you do that, then you have a better edge amongst other candidates uh, if you're applying in your home country. I think you both <coughs> highlighted how important, first of all, leadership is in, in this regard, uh, but also how important the sort of cultural um, environment is for uh, for researchers. And it does vary hugely from country to country. David and I work a lot with developing countries. And again, we see a big, a big difference between countries in the extent to which governmental organisations particularly are are supporting and developing the next generation of, of scientists and it can vary a lot so, so it is again a really important area I think um, we, we need to draw the, the discussion uh, onward towards the close I mean we've we've covered a lot of ground in what we've talked about and you are both part of the uh, the young environmental scientists group uh, of early career scientists and I think I'm interested to know how effective do you think that is? How has it helped you to sort of form your views on, on the weather enterprise, weather and climate and, and your career? Uh, how important is it? And in a sense, give us a, a flavour for how, in a way, it operates for you. Uh, maybe Sol, if we could start with you. Yes, um, so I was first involved in YES, the Young Earth System Scientist Community, uh, in 2015, because in that moment I organized a short space for legal researchers in Latin America, and then I was later invited to be part of this broader community, trying to connect uh, legal researchers from uh, over the world. In that moment, we started communicating through the website that was also a kind of platform, social network, but then the more traditional social networks have been the major tool that we use to communicate and try to promote an organization of earlier researchers under this uh, network to develop activities that will help earlier researchers to, to develop uh, new skills that actually help them to face the current uh, landscape in terms of career opportunities, not only inside academia, but also uh, in the industry or also public uh, sector. Um, we have different committees that try to oversee the activities that we do, and we organize in different working groups that try to foster uh, the scientific profiles of members interested in developing a career in, in science, but also we organize webinars and online events and we have a working group devoted to that. Uh, we try to ensure a communication with the entire community, maintaining uh, our social networks uh, very active. And we try also to push for more representation of early care researchers in global and regional initiatives like the World Meteorological Organization and its research programs, trying also to promote a balance between career stages. Sometimes we see that uh, WMO or initiatives like, like that try to push for a more gender or also regional balance. And we also think that it's important to keep a balance between career stages and that earlier researchers should have a, a voice in, in the conversation. So um, picking up on that, Shipra, I mean, I, I'm just interested to know how many of your colleagues um, at early career scientists are actually members of YES? In other words, how, how big is this YES community? Um, that's the first, the first point I'd like you to, to talk about. But, but the second one is, to what extent do you think that um, 
the rest of the community, if I can put it that way, the non-early career researchers, sort of welcome your activities? Are, are you are you welcomed into the WMO environment? Are you welcomed into um, funding agency conversations or, you know, the Learned Society? So, so a couple of points there, Shipra, if I could ask you to pick up on, please. Uh, so overall, I think that the US community constitutes of more than 2,000 members. <laughs> That's a really big number, but I wouldn't say that all of them are active. So I would say there's a good big chunk, maybe like 10 to 20 percent, uh, who are very active members and uh, uh, in different parts of the world. Uh, yes, I, I, in my personal experience, as well as what from what I have heard from colleagues within Yes, that the experience have been positive so far. Uh, most of the international organizations have been very welcoming. And uh, partly because, like, in 10 to 20 years' time, all these people who are in, like, high-level high committees would be gone, and it was it's the present generation who would take over. So it's really important to know for them as well that what science this generation wants to do, uh, what are the scientific priorities for this generation. Uh, it's a very bottom-up endeavor, I would say, because uh, we are shaping the leaders of uh, of the uh, climate sciences, uh, the next generation, by including those uh, in the science priorities and these discussions that how uh, our field should evolve in the next couple of decades. Great. As I say, we're we probably coming to the end of of our time together. I wanted to have a quick fire round now between the two of you about the science, uh, about weather and climate science. What, which, give me one area that you think you're really excited about, that you think is going to really develop and become important uh, in our field in the next years. Um, don't, don't, I don't want a, a long lecture, but just a short uh, topic that you think is exciting you. Sol, should we start with you? Okay, maybe I'm a bit uh, biased because I've been working uh, mostly on subseasonal and seasonal prediction and applications uh, in different sectors uh, like uh, formerly agriculture but now in energy. But I think that the the area of climate services has still a lot of work to do, especially thinking and informing. Um, climate scenarios on decadal timescales and also in projections. So I'm really looking forward to see major advances toward developing climate uh, services, uh, particularly for long uh, timescales. And at this moment, I'm very, very excited about the, the role that the weather and climate science can bring to the energy sector in this uh, rapid uh, decarbonization process that we need to to make in order to fulfill the committee of the Paris Agreement. I would certainly agree that subseasonal prediction is one of the real frontier areas. You know, we're, we're pretty good at forecasting a couple of weeks ahead. And we do have some regions of the world where seasonal forecasts are not too bad. But actually, this sort of one month ahead timescale, 60 days up to 60 days ahead, seems to be a real frontier where we need to make exciting advances, I think. So, Shipra, what about you? Which areas are exciting you? 
I think that for me it's a weather and climate extremes and I would say that because they have a huge impact on society and we are already at a point in time that climate change is not something we anticipate in future. It's here right now. We are feeling the impacts of climate change and in coming years it's going to increase. So just because it has a, such a large influence on our daily lives and uh, the exposure of the population, the number of people is quite high, I feel that this field is going to develop uh, at a much faster pace as compared to other fields in the next coming years. Well, thank you. I think we need to draw our discussion to a close. Um, so I'd like to thank you both, uh, Sol and Shipra, for joining us on the WeatherPod. Uh, it's been a very informative discussion, and thank you very much. Yes, th thank you both. It, it's been really enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, thank you so much for the opportunity. I enjoyed our discussion. Well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. Alan and I will be back next month, and in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email to support at gweforum.org